Hey, everybody. Matt Gurney here from The Line. Jen Gerson here with me as always. The latest episode of The Line podcast starts right now. This week, we are really, really missing the days when we could talk about the carbon tax. But alas, we're back on genocide, anti-Semitism, Israel and Gaza, and polls. All that and more in this latest episode of The Line podcast. You and I, well, it's funny. We, we should actually just say this as, as a joke, Jen, but you and I actually just had a great conversation because we're not we're not just colleagues, we're friends. And before we recorded today, we had a really good conversation and it was, it was a lot of fun. And then kind of in the middle of the conversation, it's like, oh, I guess we got a podcast now. We're recording this a day earlier than normal. Uh, that's mm -hmm. my fault. I'm traveling. So any horrible developments that happen overnight on Thursday that we miss, uh, I beg your forgiveness for that. You and I... After we had our, our good catch up as friends, we spent about 20 minutes trying to think of things to talk about in this podcast that are not related to the war. And we couldn't really come up with anything. And it's not because we're not going to talk about domestic stuff. We're, we're going to talk quite a bit about domestic stuff on the podcast today. But the war overseas is now the primary thing, I think, driving our domestic conversations there's stuff happening with housing jen there's stuff happening with groceries cost of living the fall economic economic update is coming but almost everything the government has been responding to in a public way this week has been the war it's it's amazing the degree to which the war in israel and palestine has just swamped the discourse the discourse it's it's i mean look i don't think it's wrong to say that we're in a round of moral panic over this is that wrong like, interesting uh, how do you mean okay so i mean i said i'm writing a book about moral yeah, panics more. and it's really interesting that i identify a set of conditions by which i would say we are in a state of moral panic and one of the ways that you can tell this is is hyper polarization right like oh yeah okay yeah people responding people are responding to a real or perceived threat to the community but they're just extremely black and white Manichaean, you're on side good, you're on side bad evil. And then both of these hyperpolarized positions feed off of one another and become more and more extreme until they fizzle out and collapse. And I think that we've been seeing what's been happening over the last couple of years, particularly with um, social media, has been uh, an acceleration of the moral panic cycle. Yep. So it's one moral panic, another moral panic, another moral panic, another moral panic. And it's interesting to me as well, because normally a moral panic would would have more of a, a years long build up crescendo and then denouement. Now we're seeing that moral panics happen sort of on a 12 to 18 month cycles, right? Mm -hmm. So people are sort of emotionally and psychologically super primed to respond with maximum outrage and righteousness at the drop of a hat, Right. Uh, you know, two months ago, most of the people marching this on the streets on for Palestine wouldn't have had opinion on the, on the topic. But October 7th happens, the war happens, you know, it's all of the pre-existing uh, psychological preps and cues that have that have been built up and created and stored and reinforced and um over the last few few years are then reactivated and you go for the dopamine hit and you're like on the fucking streets because you know what's right. God damn it. You know, and I'm not saying I'm not I'm not signaling out left, right, 
pro a pro Palestine, pro Israel. I, I think our entire society has been primed for these outrage cycles now, and 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 we're seeing the the rapid crescendo of another one. I I defer to your understanding of moral panics. I'm I'm looking forward to your book. I I, hmm. I don't have the... yeah. So am I. I would really like to finish writing. I'm I've, very behind. I I have written a book or two, uh, not under my own name, but I I know what you're talking about. It's they're they're fun to start. They're hell to finish. Um, I'm at the point. I'm at the point of the book where I decided where I never want to write again. So you know, I'm about sixty five percent of the way through because I'm just like I'm, I've made terrible life decisions. Life decisions and I would like. That are- I would like to go back to being a barista now, please. I, I I know exactly what you mean, and I suspect more than a few of our listeners and viewers will as well. Um, so I, I, if I if I go back to Starbucks now, I can make general manager by fifty. I think so. Uh, I think that that's an ambitious target. I'll um, give you a glowing reference. Thank you. Yeah, you can count on me. Great. Uh, so I will defer to your knowledge of moral panics. But what I will say is what you're describing has fit a pattern I've noticed before in other things. And I don't know if I would have the intellectual framework to call it a moral panic. One of the things I noted years ago, and I wrote a column about this, I could dig this up. It would be in the National Post Archive, was one of the things I noticed about every mass shooting incident in the United States was that there were thousands of people, millions of them potentially, who would pick up their arguments from the last one Mm -hmm. like they had been paused on a dvd and then someone had hit play again Mm -hmm. and it got to the point where you know the americans have way too many mass shootings but if you kind of nipped out all of the interregnum periods between them you could just play the debate and it would be one long flowing unbroken conversation because it was the exact same people making the exact same arguments the exact same way every time And in recent years, something you and I have talked about, it's not related specifically to mass shootings or mass violence or anything like that, but there has been, and you and I have talked about this, everybody, almost everybody got whipped up onto one side or another during the COVID era. Mm -hmm. Some of them, as the pandemic receded, returned to normal life. Others Mm -hmm. just diverted into new things. Mm-hmm. And you and I have talked about what we kind of colloquially called the doctors, but it was a little unfair because it was broader than that. But a lot of these people were like, whew, I can go back to normal now. Others are like, I'm going to run for office and I'm going to advocate for this, that, or the other thing. Because once they're on the treadmill, it's hard to get off. That's right. That's right. And- once, once, once you've, you've, it's almost like once you've psychologically primed yourself for these dopamine cycles, you need the next hit. You're looking for the next hit. You're looking for the next hit. An addiction by any other name. Um, It is an addiction. I I really do think it is an addiction. So the entire, there's a subset of the entire culture that's now highly addicted to this. And then this is the moment where Israel and Palestine flares up yet again. We just plug an issue. Yeah. Like the issues are interchangeable, but we, you know, it's interesting. You and I actually had a similar thought then, because I said to a friend of mine last night, um, this is uh, a friend who, 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 shout out, I'm sure she's listening to our podcast right now because I know she's a, a regular. One of the things that I had said to her was that if you, you and I, you, Jen Gerson McErnie, had set out a year ago in our usual grim way to make a, like, to make a guess of what would be the absolute worst thing to do to our society right now, a genocidal conflict between Israel and the Arabs. It's about perfect. It's perfect. It's, it's perfect. And and also the other interesting thing is that because it has been so quiet for so long on that front, 
it's almost like there's a whole new generation coming up right now who have never been exposed to all of these arguments that we have been hearing over and over again since we were in university. And this is all new and fresh and shiny to them. This is a moment in our, like one of the things I I wrote uh, now that the TVO strike is over, thank God I've written my first column back at TVO as a freelancer. And one of the things I wrote about was it's very important to to talk about this. What's happening in the middle East is foremost uh, a story of the middle East. It's a humanitarian catastrophe. It's, it's a geopolitical crisis, blah, blah, blah. It's all those things. But we also have to recognize it's having big effects on us here at home. In North America, we are caught up in this, not in the same way that our people in in Gaza or in Israel are or have been, but we are buffeted by this. There is backwash coming off this conflict, and we are right in the middle of it. And one of because it's a continuation of all of the previous moral panics to come before it, and all the the shifts in dialogue that have been coming before it. It's an interesting one to me because I wonder about that. You could be right. What I'm wondering is it. A continuation of the same old cycle of moral panics with a new issue inserted, or is it the return of an old issue, but catching us at a moment when our society is primed for polarized combat? Potato, potato. Is it like it I might think it's be? It's a potato, potato. I... Yeah, it's a potato, potato moment. It's funny because, like, back in the nineties and even the two thousands, when you know yeah. there was flare-ups. I mean, what was the, when was the last flare-up? Twenty fourteen. Well, I mean, um, there's. There, there were some more recently, but the last big one was the 14, last big yeah. one was fourteen. Like back then, it was almost like a sense of oh shit, they're at it again. Like you know what I mean? Like there was it, there wasn't the same degree of extreme outrage, counter outrage, protest. It just wasn't even close to this. It wasn't even remote like remotely like this. Something shifted. What's shifted? Well, uh, there's been things. a generational. There's been a generational shift in the last ten years. There has been, a, I would say, like the rise of wokeism has fundamentally shifted the, a lot of the mainstream discourse on on topics like resistance, uh, colonialism, colonialism, decolonization, genocide. Like, so all, there's been some 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 intellectual priming on some of these issues. Um, there's clearly been um, a, a shift in the media infrastructure and infra- uh, infoscape as well. I mean, the rise of TikTok. Collapsed. We mainstream media's collapse the rise of tiktok and we know we know a lot of young people are getting their understanding about what's happening in the conflict from tiktok it's, and it's overwhelmingly very one-sided pro pro gaza pro um palestine um from from the short clip video space let me just say this there is the, you couldn't be getting your information about this conflict from a worse source than something that has to reduce a conflict to a 30 second video clip like the, there really is no worse way to be trying to absorb something as conf- complex and dense as Israel and Palestine. Like the, get it from hour long Canadian podcast. Yeah, yeah, get it from your hour long. Exactly. Like, this is the worst way to be trying to transmit complicated, nuanced information. Right. Yeah. Um, and also the the the, gener- the demographic breakdowns of support on Hamas on, on on these issues is really interesting as well. So I think it's been a, a rise of a new generation um, that has been kind of born, bred, and fed on the the moral panic, moral cycle of outrage beast um, coming of age as well, and 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 breaking down a lot of the old taboos and expectations around what side we're on, what 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 we value. 
um, what's acceptable in war, what isn't acceptable in war, like all of these assumptions are are collapsing for, I think, a, a coming generation. And I think you are massively seeing that in the way that the support is broken down among demographics, each demographics. Yeah. Right. So anyway, that's what I think shifted. But let me there are. Well, let me tell you two other things I think have shifted as well. One of them is something we've talked about before, uh, which is that. Believe me, gosh, Jen, I do not exempt myself from this at all. We're all tired. Uh, Mm -hmm. Four years of operating in crisis mode. Mm -hmm. So I think our societal reserves of goodwill, uh, benefit Mm -hmm. of the doubt, charity, Mm -hmm. kind feeling to your fellow man. I I think we're we're low on all this stuff. And you and I Mm -hmm. have talked about how I think more than once we've talked about how I think a lot of the social ills we're dealing with right now. You don't need big swings if you lower your societal resiliency by 10% and make a problem 10% worse. Mm-hmm. That opens up a 20% gap. And then then you're running a really bad social deficit. And I think that explains a lot of what's going on. So one of the things that I think has changed is that all of us are pissed off and we're tired and we're cranky and we're tired of that guy's shit. Whoever it happens to be, again, that's value neutral. It could be a right-wing guy. It could be a left-wing guy. We're all fed up. We're tired after four years of operating in crisis. And I think the other thing, and I know it sounds so trite to say this, but I think we, what happened on October 7th was really fucking bad. And I, and I think, and I I don't even mean that in the sense of, oh, it's horrible, although God knows it is. And I I haven't hidden my views on that. It's an unusually, like, I'm going to boil this down. And with all respect to any Israeli or Jewish listeners here, I'm not trying to distill October 7th into something very banal. But I'm going to do that just to this limited extent. This is an unusually violent episode that led to the start of this conflict. So we have a society that is already exhausted, forced into a conflict with an unusually bad situation as the underlying cause here. In the long history of battles in the Middle East, October 7th probably isn't the worst thing that's happened to Israel or the most danger Israel's been in but it's the worst in 50 years. So the, the stakes on an existential sense are very high this time. I have a lot of friends in Israel and I don't know if uh, North Americans who are not as well connected. I don't think there's an appreciation of how this issue is being played there. This is nine 11, but an Mm -hmm. order of magnitude bigger. Mm -hmm. Imagine how fucked up North American society got much worse. And I'm not saying the Israelis are fucked up. I don't mean that, but in terms of how it's going to have an emotional impact on people, we're dealing with something worse than 9-11. Well, but also we're also dealing with increasingly young people who have come of age with no memory of 9-11. That's interesting. The other interesting thing that that to parallel for this is it's, it's been fascinating to watch the way that Arab media has really stopped. How do this? They have become very dis. A lot of Arab media, not all, but a lot of Arab media have become really disillusioned with Hamas, with the Palestinian cause in general. Yeah, and you can see this in the in in yeah. the some of the most critical and brutal interviews with Hamas leaders have been coming from like Saudi and yeah. Egypt and places who were just like, "What the fuck did you think that Israel was going to do?" Like what? And also, they're really pissed off with the um one of the Hamas leaders who said, uh, "It's not our responsibility to protect our our citizens. That's the UN's responsibility." Like. The Arabs are not having that shit. Like they, they're getting real clear-eyed about Hamas at a moment when the West is losing it. 
absolutely losing their capacity to see clearly what what these people are the arabs are the ones who are who are like yeah uh that was a little far guys you know it's i'm i'm not a middle east expert i'm not a middle eastern expert but i am reasonably up to speed on the region i find it personally interesting and i have friends in the region so i i stay up to speed on it People who pay attention to this have actually noticed that happening quite a lot in the last five years. And mm-hmm. part of it has been the Trump era um, uh, accords between Israel and some of the Arab powers. That so Saudi, wasn't Saudi Arabia was actually shooting down Yemeni rockets that was targeted that were headed t- yeah. toward Israel. Yeah. And Israel right. has normalized relations with some of the Arab countries. Um, well, and this also goes to the divide between the Gulf states and Iran yep. as well. Like a lot of the Gulf states are like, yeah, so who's our real threat and who's a real ally here? Because and one of the one of the features of that has been, I think, a palpable and observable. De- the Palestinian cause is not the unifying force it has traditionally been in the Arab world. Mm-hmm. And even in the Arab world, we are seeing, I think to your point, um, uh, I think I think you've stated it well. And smart observers I talk to uh, have said to me, the Palestinians are missing a window of opportunity here because one of the things they've traditionally counted on is a fairly united Arab bloc behind them. Now, not, not to the extent of we'll let in refugees, but like there was yeah. political consensus in its frame. So I agree with you on it that is. one. Yeah, it's so amazing. The, political consen- the, the old alliances and the political consensuses aren't just fraying on the left, or they're sorry, aren't just fraying in the fraying in the West. You know what I mean? Like the, there's a realignment happening on a lot of different fronts. So that's been really interesting to watch. I don't want to get into the old talking points about you know the way that Netanyahu Netanyahu has been in deep shit in, with the Israelis. We know that. Um, the other thing that's been interesting to watch has been. Um, Oh, anyway, there's 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 a lot going on. I mean, there's old talking points as well as like it's it's really ironic that the left is losing its mind over, you know, a certain number of uh, um, uh, Palestinians being murdered. But of course, you know, like or being killed in in combat. But of course, you know, there's never any similar outrage or weeping over Muslims being killed in Syria, Muslims being killed in Yemen. Like you know what I mean? Like nobody gives a shit about any of this until all of a sudden the Jews are involved, right? Like and the the inherent hypocrisy of that as well. So, um, yeah, it's it's a, there, as I said, I don't think that the realignment and the 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 shifting um, goalposts on all of this. I don't think that it's only in one direction because people uh, are focusing on the left are often missing some of the realignment and the fraying that's happening in the Middle East itself. So that's been really neat, um, just from a, an intellectual point of view. But I think that that takes us away from canada which i mean is we're not experts on the middle east we're not going to pretend to be experts on the middle east we're just observing this stuff as a bunch of canadian hacks from well afar but it's been really interesting to watch how all of this has been playing out canada because of course our domestic politics have been highly fixated with it we've had two interesting comments that have come out in the last week one was a comment by justin trudeau which was i think safe to say highly equivocal in the sense that it was calling on Israel to stop, I think, baby killing was the phrase. Uh, that's a little, it's a tiny bit uncharitable, but it's pretty close to it. It's basically too many women and children and babies are dying. Yeah, too many women and children. Okay, got it. Um, and then you've got Jagmeet Singh basically accusing the Israeli defense forces of sowing the seeds of genocide. You, but, okay. I, I know you hate which it. One, which, which one of these do you want to take first? Well, I know you hate it when I say this, but I'm only a couple of years older than you. But that means I do remember a few things that you probably don't. You would have been in pigtails when the Rwandan genocide happened. 
the Bill Clinton administration. You're not that much older than me. You're only like a year older than me, dude. Yeah, but I'm d- dead inside in a well, way. Well, it's that... true, and you're also balder and grayer. So people would people would assume that you're a lot older just to look at us. I went bald and gray because I spent the early 1990s watching White House press briefings instead of Ninja Turtles. Um, mm, that was your first I, mistake. I'm kidding. I did. I, I watched Ninja Turtles too. Um, but one of the things that the White House was doing in Bill Clinton during the Rwandan genocide is no one wanted to use the word genocide because genocide mm. compels international response. Mm. So even in, even though like there were news teams there and there was poor friggin' Romeo Dallaire trying to hold the entire goddamn region together with like moral courage and there was no doubt that there was mass rape, mass killing, ethnic cleansing, but the White House was talking about, well, there have been acts of genocide, but not genocide. And when so when I when Jugmeet Singh this week said sowing the seeds of genocide, I know what he's doing. He wants to use the G word, but not in a way where he's explicitly accusing Israel of it, because that would make him do things. Now, I mean, obviously, the international law does not apply to the leader of the third fourth party in the Canadian Parliament. But like if if Jugmeet Singh comes out and goes, Israel is committing genocide, that's going to mean he's going to have to position his party, which is the confidence and supply partner of the government in ways that he does not want to. So he wants the full value of using the G word without any of the hassle of having to act like he actually believes it. Right. The other thing you said, which one I was take first, that's. That well, I, think I, is- I, 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 I want to follow up on the idea of uh, on this position because I want to reiterate yeah. a point that we've made in the previous podcast, and that is when people use the word genocide to describe what is happening in Israel and Palestine and Gaza right now on November 16th at 1.23 in the afternoon, Mountain Standard Time, I instantly have to come to the conclusion that they're a bit slow or a bit soft-headed because Genocide has a specific meaning. It's not just they're killing lots of people. Oh. It's a specific meaning that is they're killing or trying to eliminate a people. A people. Yeah. I there reprinted the Canadian definition in one of our yeah. recent dispatches. Yes, correct. It, 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 there's a specific in, intent part of it that is actually quite sometimes can be difficult to prove. But it's not just, oh, they're bombing things they shouldn't be bombing. They're bombing an apartment block. That's genocide. That that's that doesn't meet the definition. You need to see evidence that the Israelis are actually trying to eliminate two million Palestinians as a people. And there is no, as of today, there is no evidence of that. Now, if on November 17th, God forbid, Israeli were to drop three nuclear bombs on the Gaza Strip and glass the entire region, yes. Yeah, I'd object to that. That that would be a genocide. I would not object to using the word that term. You know, right now, this doesn't meet the bar. And and bluntly, I don't mean to be a real bitch about this, but this is urban warfare. It's ugly. It's bloody. It's really nasty. Urban warfare always is. It's the bloodiest, nastiest kind of warfare there is. But it's not even particularly extreme urban warfare by historic standards. We've seen nastier, bloodier, more awful urban warfare in Ukraine. I don't know if I ever said this on one of our podcasts, but I Charles Adler interviewed me on, on his show, and I said it on the record in his podcast. My off-the-cuff estimate for death toll among Palestinian civilians ranged from, and this was a few weeks ago, ranged from twenty to 50,000. Mm-hmm. And I, I wouldn't have had to 
I told him I could actually easily sketch out a scenario where that goes higher. There's a fairly, there's, there's wide ranges, but urban combat against a military force that is rooted in a civilian population, you can kind of estimate in a broad way, how many civilian, like what the ratio of civilian fatalities is to enemy personnel killed. And given that Hamas has an estimated fighting strength of 30 to 40,000, if you start just applying some of the historic multiples of how many mm-hmm. civilians would die to destroy an armed force of that size, you get to some really bleak numbers. And mm-hmm. I know that no one wants to think about, I think as of today, the death toll is around 11,000 or at least well, according to Hamas. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Let's take that at face value just for the sake of argument. I'm not telling anyone how to feel about that number, but I am telling mm-hmm. them that that is on the low end of my estimate. So, and I would also say, like, look, if you were to compare the fighting that's happening in Gaza to the way that the Russians treated Mariupol, for example, I think that this would give you a pretty stark comparison of what mild urban warfare versus extreme urban warfare looks like in in reality. Um, I also would say we've seen modern genocides and what that looks like. We can very easily make the argument that Russia's committed genocide in many parts of eastern Ukraine. That looks like taking babies away. That looks like yeah. concentration camps. Yep. That looks like systematic and system systemically supported torture regimes. Like we've seen that in Ukraine. There's arguably a genocide happening right now in Sudan. Mm-hmm. It looks real different from what we're seeing on the ground in Israel. And I think that a lot of the people using the genocide word are very lucky to live in very comfortable, happy nations as we do. And they haven't had a lot of exposure to violence. There's a similar thing that I would say, like, so my husband used to be a bouncer. And (laughs) so a lot of good stories start with a lot of great stories started that way. And it was always so interesting to him because remember when we were having a lot of concerns about what was constituting police brutality. So like videos of police brutality would 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 circulate Twitter, and sometimes they were genuine genuine examples of police brutality. George Floyd, for example, was a clear example of police brutality. But sometimes you what you were seeing is you were seeing multiple cops pinning people, somebody who was resisting arrest, and to people who had not been exposed to violence and didn't understand what that looked like, it looked really brutal. Because they didn't have a sense of like, well, what's a normal use of force? What's what does the escalation force look like? Like, what does violence really look like? For someone who was like my husband, who was involved in violent incidences quite regularly, and let's talk about that on the podcast. The better. Um, He's told me a story or two. He 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 was much better able to determine the difference between genuine police overreach and police brutality. And just something that happened to look brutal because when you have multiple armed people people taking down a large man who is resisting arrest, that looks brutal. It is brutal. It is. No, it um, is. Police brutality is not normally the initial brutality. It's the unnecessary subsequent brutality. Exactly. So, the the again, this isn't me trying to negate the existence of police brutality. This is me saying that people who you know live comfortable, happy lives and don't get exposed to violence a lot aren't necessarily best positioned to make these determinations. Know what violence is. They don't know what violence is. Um, And I think that this is a similar kind of thing in in Israel. Now, I'm watching this very much from afar. I'm not on the ground. I'm sure there are better observers there. I mean, whatever, listen to whatever experts you want. I'm not claiming to be an expert. What I would observe here is that a lot of people are being exposed to 
awful, awful images and, 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 and experiences as a result of what they're seeing in Gaza for the first they're time, this, for the yeah. first time, because they haven't been paying attention when this happened in Mariupol. They, they weren't paying attention when this has happened multiple times in other types of urban warfare environments. And they're so too they young don't to have, remember Fallujah. They're too young to remember Fallujah. So they don't have a good sort of grounded ex, uh, experience of what this really looks like. And they're shocked by her, how horrific it is. I'm sorry. I, I tell a slight joke here at my own expense. Um, but like, yeah, they weren't paying attention to Mariupol. They're too young to remember Fallujah, and they don't have two degrees in 20th century military history. Yeah, you 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 can credibly call yourself an expert. I cannot. So I will defer to you on this. And if you are telling me that what you're seeing in Gaza um, exceeds your expectations of violence by historic standards, I will listen to you when you say that. It's not. Um, what 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 I'm seeing and what I recognize and what will be controversial is that Israel has made a conscious choice. And this is something I don't remember if this was on the air or off the air, uh, but I remember telling you very like the day or two after this happened, I said to you, Israel is going to have a choice when it goes into Gaza where it can spend infantry or it can spend explosives. Mm-hmm. That's how you fight in an urban area. You advance either by committing large numbers of your own troops and you simply overwhelm with weight of numbers, but you accept high losses, Mm -hmm. or you advance by expending uh, explosives, firepower. Mm -hmm. Israel is spending explosives. It is not, I'm sure it has in some tactical environments chosen for whatever reasons to spend um, manpower instead of explosives but israeli battle casualties have been very low mm-hmm. a lot lower than i expected and civilian casualties have also been lower than i expected no one wants to be told no one wants nuance explained to them right because every mm-hmm. like everybody has the predetermined opinion on this mm-hmm. the israelis are destroying more than i expected them to mm-hmm. they have killed fewer people than i expected them to mm-hmm. And they have lost fewer people than i expected and one of the things that is percolating and you mentioned earlier arab media One of the things that's bubbling up in the Arab media and uh, the Al-Shifa hospital, which Israel uh, Mm -hmm. attacked the complex there this week, I'm a little hesitant to talk too much about that on the podcast because that operation's ongoing. Uh, As of an hour or two ago, they were still uh, fighting in the area. One of the stories that keeps bubbling up is that Gazans are quietly cooperating with the IDF, Hmm. where where there is communication going on where apparently, according to some reports in the Arab media, one of the ways Israel was able to take the hospital relatively bloodlessly is when people opened the doors. And that there is communication going on, because I think it's important to remember that Gazan, Hamas is not particularly loved among Gazans here. And yeah. you've you've got a battalion of Merkava tanks rolling up, and you got a call on your cell phone, because Israeli intelligence is good at this. And you're like, hi, I'm the I'm I'm the lieutenant colonel commanding the battalion of tanks that's just arrayed 300 meters from you. Would you like to tell us where the bad guys are so that we can kill them discreetly? Mm-hmm. The 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 proliferation of these stories it's unconfirmed at this point, but I suspect it will eventually be a big part of the war. Well, um, let's also remember that like Hamas is a tyrannical and repressive force to the Palestinians. Like yes. you can we can talk about the mistakes that Israel's made toward the the, the, the Palestinians and the West and, and the, the Gaza Strip and the whole whole rest. Like that no dispute. Israel's clearly made many mistakes. That they would not have gotten to this point if we had not made many mistakes. But Hamas is not like a nice, happy, fun government if you're living in Gaza. It's deeply unpopular. Deeply unpopular, 
I mean, there's a reason why they haven't held an election since 2006. Um, it's a highly repressive, highly theocratic evil regime that takes no responsibility for the care of the people that it for, seeks to govern and control. You know, so I, if I were if I were in Kazan, I'd be like, yeah, I don't know. Not, don't bomb my apartment building. Go go after the tunnels, right? The other interesting thing is that the, the, the tunnels are, um, my understanding is that the tunnels do require ordinance to destroy because the trying to, to uh, close these tunnels is incredibly dangerous if you're doing it with manpower. They're not going to. They're going to starve them out. Mm, okay, that makes sense. It's it's going to be, I was tweeting this around the week. It's going to be a siege warfare. Israel's ground operation in Northern Gaza the seems to me primarily to be aimed at securing and sealing the tunnel in, uh, entrances. Mm -hmm. Hamas has an estimated three to four months of supplies. Israel mm -hmm. can hold Northern Gaza for five months. Okay. Interesting. It, it's going to suck, but I want to, I want to, if, if you don't mind, I want to pivot it back just to the, the domestic side of this a bit, because mm -hmm. you, we yeah, had, yes. we had set up a Jugmeet Singh's comment and also Justin Trudeau's comment. And we've briefly summarized uh, Justin Trudeau's comment. Yeah, but um, there's, there's just, there's also just one more thing I want to say about genocide. There's just one more thing I want to say about genocide. And this is why I I'll, think I'll never stop someone from saying okay. one more thing about genocide. Look, I mean, there's a reason why we made that word up. And there's a reason why it has particular emotional con connotation and, and consonants. And there's a reason a why. Word. Yeah. And there's a reason why also diminishing that word and using it to uh, describe an ever larger number of scenarios that we mm -hmm. want to describe as bad is dangerous. And that's because if you're calling Israel genocide heirs or their actions genocidal, when there's no evidence that that's the case, there's a very good chance that someone in Israel is going to make the calculation, well, they're going to call us genocide heirs no matter what we do. Don't so fuck it. Fuck. Like you, no. you by, 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 dis, by reducing the emotional power of that word by using it inappropriately as it's being used in this case at this exact at this particular moment, you're you're perversely creating a disincentive. You're perversely creating a disincentive for Israel to maintain restraint, because if they're going to get condemned as genocidal, no matter what they do, no matter how restrained they are comparatively, oh, fine, fuck it, they're going to get condemned no matter what. So. The, the 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 emotional power of restraint or the emotional incentive toward restraint is is slowly diminished and lifted and i think this is a really important point to make sorry I that agree. was my last point on Don't, and i and i i endorse it fully i agree with every word of it um what i would add is my so you know i joked at the very beginning i wish we could talk about the carbon tax like i <laughs> wish there was something we had a great couple of weeks. A great we couple could weeks talk with the about carbon the carbon tax. tax. It was great. It was so fun. Um, one of the things I said at the start of the podcast was that um, even with a fall economic statement coming up, even with uh, 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 Housing Minister Fraser continuing to sign deals, including in your ho hometown this week, mm -hmm. the backdrop to everything in our federal politics right now is the war overseas. Mm -hmm. And I am fascinated by what I'm I'm going to describe this very neutrally. I think most regular the line readers, listeners, viewers know I'm not a huge fan of Justin Trudeau, but I'm actually going to try and offer, take me at my word or not, a completely neutral political analysis. I am a I I have my own political views, but I also have I'm an experienced political observer. Let me tell you what I'm observing without commenting on it. Mm -hmm. Mr. Trudeau does not have a safe position to take on this conflict. And it seems like every day he is 
trying to take a position that corrects whatever position he recently took. Mm-hmm. And I think this does not, I don't think this is a reflection on him or his failures. I think this is a reflection on the fact that if you are the leader of the Liberal Party of Canada in 2023, there is no safe position for you on this issue. Jagmeet Singh will figure out a coherent position to take. I think Pierre Polyev will figure out a coherent position to take. Justin Trudeau is purely reactive here, and Mm -hmm. I don't think it could be any other way. So he had his comment earlier this week calling on Israel to have maximum restraint. Mm -hmm. We also had, as we talked about in last week's podcast, we had Melanie Jolie, uh, we'll get Hamas at a bargaining table. Pragmatic diplomacy. I I got most of that out of my system last week, but not all of it. Um, <laughs> and then we had Benjamin Netanyahu and, and Yair Lapid, uh, the, who up until recently was the opposition leader in Israel. No fan of Mr. Netanyahu, but now he's part of a unity government with him. Mm-hmm. They both called out Justin Trudeau. Mm-hmm. Justin Trudeau flies to California for the APEC conference. The governor of California makes fun of him for his socks. There's <laughs> been... A string of polls out this week. Some of them are horse race polls that show the broader pattern we've seen uh, of late, which is that the liberals are are performing poorly. But we also have attitudinal polls taken of voters uh, rating liberal performance on issues. And it sucks. And you look at the demographic breakdowns of the polls the liberals are in. They're losing boomer women now. And that was their last redoubt of support. The yes. only part of the country where the liberals are beating the conservatives is Quebec, but they're tied with the block there and the conservatives are gaining. Mm-hmm. This is None of this is intended to tell you anything what I think about Justin Trudeau. None of this is in, intended to say that Justin Trudeau should go take a walk in the snow. But he's in a situation where there is absolutely no safe harbor for him right now. And every day when I see the Canadian government position on Israel changing again, we have to understand that this is a reflection of a reactive government where there is no right move. And uh, Mr. Trudeau has tweeted earlier in the week. And then as I've already noted, you've noted as well, we're recording this day early on Thursday, which is today, Mr. Trudeau had a much more measured tweet out about Israel's right to defend itself. What the hell do is he what, doing? Yeah, do you know it, what this actually tells pong. me? It's no. Pong. He, like it's his caucus factions. Yeah, it's the caucus factions. That yeah. that that is that that's what that's telling me is that essentially the caucus Boop. itself Boop. Boop. has been has Boop. been has been wrapped up into the outrage cycle. The caucus itself has got its own problems, run insularity and control issues and all sorts of things. We already saw the first major cracks happen over the carbon tax. Oh, the carbon tax. Oh, I missed that. We did it. We did it. Yay! We had the first major cracks over the carbon tax. And I think that what this is, this this weird vacillation is indicative of this, is that there are deep, deep caucus factions and probably also a desire to placate the NDP, which of course is much further to the left, much more further in ceasefire territory than the liberals are. And they're, the end result is that you tr- have a, um, a leader who's trying to bridge an impossible gap. What this also tells you is that my assessment so far is proving correct. The one that I issued two weeks ago about Justin Trudeau is not going to quit. He, he literally lacks the ego required to recognize that he's going over a cliff and turn the car around. He, he He's constitutionally incapable of, of going for this walk, for the walk in the snow. 
Um, and I think that he's still trying to fix the caucus problems. He's still trying to bridge the gap with increasingly impossible var variations on semantics in order to fix these problems. To me, that indicates that, that he's still fighting. He's still trying to win. He's still trying to fight. He's mm. not giving up. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's Maybe if I just phrase Atari it exactly vintage. the right way, I can, I can, I can resolve the caucus divide and that will fix it. And then I can fight the next election because I'm not giving up to that. That was the game, right? The Atari game was Pong. Pong. Yeah. Yeah. Where the, just like the ball just goes do, back do, and do, forth. Do. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not quitting to lose to that tour Pierre Polyev. So what do I need to say to make every, get everybody on side again? You know, liberals are not going to be unfamiliar with me saying things that piss them off, but I'm going to say something here that pisses them off. And it's going to be something I've never actually said before. Oh, a new way of pissing them off. A new way of pissing them off. You know who Justin Trudeau reminds me of uh, this week? Who? Doug Ford. Oh. And what I mean. And I've never actually said that before because I don't think they're at all alike. But I have seen many times Doug Ford get himself into a situation where you it's so frustrating when it happens because you know where it's going to end. And it's when Doug Ford is changing his position all the time in reaction to whomever has yelled at him most recently. Mm hmm. And Justin Trudeau, and I actually say this for what it's worth, guys, I say this with some admiration for him on this front. Justin Trudeau is a guy who was traditionally stuck to his guns. But first on carbon tax, did it again. Well, actually, we could look at a bunch of flip-flops he's had over mm -hmm. the last guns. year. Guns was one. Um, uh, carbon tax recently was another. And now Israel-Palestine. He's not flip-flopping on Israel-Palestine. He's not doing like a full 180 in his position no, no, the but way he's, Doug he's Ford trying to, he's, trying to, he's trying to thread the needle. He's bad. Well, he's bad. Like, it's like when you're bowling and they got those kid-friendly gutter things in mm -hmm. and your ball's just kind of bouncing mm -hmm. <laughs> from side to side. The way... Justin Trudeau has been handling Israel and Gaza this week reminds me of how Doug Ford handles a crisis when his position changes every day. And now, no people, now people go, Hey Matt, come on. His position actually hasn't changed. No, but the tone changes. The messaging yeah, it's, changes. It's, it's, the not, it's not the position. Changes. It's messaging. It's emphasis. It's tone. It's specific language. It's code words. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's all of that, right? Like that, as I said, he's trying to thread a needle and he's doing it really clumsily. And to me, as I said, it, not to get onto, you know, uh, Ottawaology or Parliamentology here, Kremlinology, but it, it, it's just indicative to me that there's serious caucus divisions that he can't resolve. You know, what, I that's wanna, what's being reflected here. I want to give you the slightest bit of pushback here. It's more of a rephrasing. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's doing it clumsily. I think he's probably doing it about as best as any human being could. That's fair. Yeah. It's, I think he's in a truly impossible position. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's probably better. It, it's it's a really, it's really hard to be a centrist party trying to come up with a reasonable, sensible position on a complicated issue when essentially the, the, the issue has polarized and cleaved um, to such an extent that there, there is no middle ground anymore. Right. Like that's, that's probably it. I think, you know, it's unfortunate our podcast today is probably not as organized as it normally would be because there's really only one topic to talk about. But I think to the extent that there's any domestic angle to it, really, it's worth mentioning um, that, unfortunately, since you and I last spoke, there has been, a, uh, you know, what? it's not even another Jewish school hit by gunfire in Montreal. It was one of the same ones. It mm -hmm. was fired on again. 
Mm-hmm. Um, a, a food truck owned by a Jewish business in Montreal was vandalized. And again, this is a day earlier than normal. So forgive us if we miss anything big. Uh, but there were two really upsetting incidents in Toronto. And one of them was a, a Starbucks in a heavily uh, Jewish part of the city being uh, defaced with anti-Semitic graffiti. Mm-hmm. And the other is actually a Muslim man who has reported to police that he was he's a cabbie. And apparently the passenger asked him, are you Muslim? And when he said yes, he was sprayed with some kind of um, ir- irritant substance, like a mace or something like that here. You and I talked last week that we're on the train. Mm-hmm. Physically assaulting a Muslim man and um, vandalizing Jewish businesses and further gunfire at Jewish at the same Jewish school. I don't know if the trains move that much further down the tracks, but it ain't moving backwards. No. We're still heading in the wrong direction here. Um, and I, I think it's important for us to to emphasize the fact that from my perspective, I almost don't care if the acts of violence are are or anti-Jewish or anti-Muslim, because what worries me, other than, of course, the human consequences, of course, I don't mean to downplay that, what worries me is the escalator. Mm-hmm. And I don't, it doesn't matter if you're in, in an escalatory scenario, first mover is not relevant. Mm-hmm. The fact that someone moves is relevant. Mm-hmm. And then that ratchets up the tension a little bit more. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a problem I have. And I... Like and subscribe our podcast. Smash that like button. Sorry, I just I, I like to find the most inappropriate pauses in order to um, encourage people to uh, boost our algorithms. Boost um, those algos. Can I further on that by talking about somebody who I generally wouldn't like to talk about in our podcast? Now I'm nervous because you haven't told me in advance what this is, but okay. Yes, I have. I have told you in advance what this is. I want to talk about Jesse Brown. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. You did mention I think, I think this. Okay. this is an yeah. appropriate moment. To okay. Yeah, this is fine. Of, so no, I normally wouldn't want to talk about Jesse Brown because I don't like to fixate on other media, particularly other independent media. The only media yeah. who, we, who we really like to pick on here at the line is the CBC. And as taxpayers, we feel rather entitled, but other media go and do their thing. I mean, respect everybody's you know, finding their audience, finding a new way to work in their collapsing media landscape. Jen, Blessings I love you, but we need head. to work on your salute. I'm not or, saluting. I'm just waving. Oh, I thought because that was just, very sloppy. I'm just being, I'm just being emphatic. That's all. I'm you know, like anyway, um, like, I, I got nothing but respect for their media and I don't like to, to, to fixate or, or, or pick another independent medium and everybody's finding their own path. And I totally respect and love that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it was really interesting to me to watch Jesse Brown, who of course founded Canada Land, who's kind of more of a lefty independent media organization. If you're aware of us, I'm sure you're aware of them. I mean, I did a podcast with um, uh, at Canada Land called Oppo for a couple of years there. I've been on Jesse's podcast. Yeah, yeah, I've been a Jesse's bet guest. I've been a Je- like lots of us have been on on Jesse's podcast. Lots of us have done stuff with him. Um, uh, you know, and 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 political agreements or disagreements, totally aside, not relevant to this conversation. Jesse is a is a, is a Jewish man in Toronto. And he put out a series of tweets uh, this week documenting a lot of the anti-Semitic violence and intimidation and backlash that has been happening in Toronto and Montreal, I believe. And to my mind, I read it, like he was quite neutral. He didn't make any strong statements about Israel or Gaza. To me, the overall takeaway from this tweet was 
your Jewish neighbors are scared. Um, some of this stuff is really obviously crossing the line into anti-Semitism. Um, and just please have some compassion for your Jewish neighbors and maybe stop and think about what you're, what you're talking about. I mean, he, he singled out two particular personalities by name and saying, you know, this person supported Hamas and, um, you, you know, this person's kind of gaslighting us and blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to get into the details. It's You can go and look, read the thread yourself. I'm not going to speak for Jesse Brown on this. But I read this overall tweet as a pretty benign, hey, please don't target random Toronto Jews who have nothing to do with Israel and have nothing to do with the war. You know, it's, 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 it's not, it's not cool. And I don't also want to read too much into Twitter backlash because Twitter backlash can feel more intense than it actually is. It is what it is. Yeah. It is what it is. But the backlash that he got from his, mostly his own audience for that very benign thread was crazy. I saw. And it was absolutely mask off shit. And I'm going to read one example to you and then I'm going to get into it here. Okay. Um, And I'm going to pull it up the example here. And that is one of these tweets, and it was very indicative, was condemn Jesse Brown's unethical reporting on Palestinian activism in Canada. So this person is taking a benign request to not target Toronto Jews who have nothing to do with Israel or the war, and they're reframing it as, quote, unethical reporting on Palestinian activism. And I'm trying to explain this in a really cogent way. But if you are interpreting concern for Toronto Jews as tacit support for Israel, that is a connection that you're making that totally undermines the claim that you can fairly criticize Israel without being anti-Semitic. Okay? You can, because the sort of but a lot people, of people find it real hard. Well, yeah, exactly. Because the sort of people that Jesse is trying to defend here have really nothing to do with Israel. They have nothing to do with the IDF. They have nothing to do with the war. You can't, on one hand, say that pro-Palestinian activism isn't anti-Semitic while simultaneously arguing that some random Jewish daycare center is a valid target for your resistance. Like, you can't have this both ways, all right? You want to criticize the IDF, you want to criticize Netanyahu, you want to do all that? Great, you do you. But you can't then simultaneously, that's not anti-Semitic, but me going after some random Jewish cafe owner that's that's a legitimate target of Palestinian resistance. Like if you're conflating Israel and the actions of the IDF with worldwide Jewry, okay, you're on the anti-Semitic train, whether you want to admit it or not. And so the people who are condemning Jesse Brown for what he said, which again was pretty benign, are making that connection. They're making that leap for me. They're not like they're 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 saying, no, 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 it's totally cool that we went after that Jewish daycare. Fuck you, Zionist. You know what I mean? Like you can't, you can't have this both ways. You can't have, you can't say, look, criticism of of Israel isn't anti-Semitic. We should be able to criticize the actions of a state. Yes, agreed, hundred percent. But if your concept of criticizing the actions of the state mean going after Jews who happen to live in your community, You've you've crossed the streams here, man. I don't know what to tell you. You you've 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 gone over you've crossed the Rubicon. You're you're 
you're on the anti-Semitic side of this now. So you know what my favorite movie is? What's your favorite movie? Ghostbusters. Okay. You just said cross the streams and it made me happy. Oh, there you go. I mean, I, that's I all. Just, yeah, I'm not trying to drag the conversation. Of, it, but it, it, it made me think of two men pissing across a stream. But like, anyway, this no, it's is the pro, it was the proton streams. From it was the, the proton uh, streams, right? Yeah. Okay. So you reverse the polarity and swung the gate. It was trapping. It was all a penis it. joke. Come on, though. I mean, the guns were highly phallic. But anyway, um, look, I went here, not you. That's that says more about me than it does about you. But anyway, try but to this imagine is just, every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. I'm not going here. We're not making Ghostbusters reference right now. I'm being serious. Okay. Uh, I mean, look, this like this is something that I'm seeing. That, as I said, I don't know how representative these, these responses were. Some of them actually did devolve into outright threats against him personally. Yeah, I saw. Yeah, he t- I mean, retweeted some of it's, those. It's pretty nasty, and it was pretty. It was some pretty mask off stuff for me. Um, to me, yeah, it was. It was pretty often. Often, but I would. I, I would also. I'm not trying to both sides or this him both sides are ism this but i also saw some very ugly stuff from the conservative wings coming out of this which again you and i don't really align with but i mean people like tucker carlson and elon musk and those types of people who may are making the argument to the effect of the jews are responsible for all of this anti-white white um racism and the rise of wokeism so therefore i don't give a shit now that the palestinians are coming after their their cafes yeah this is also anti-Semitism. This is also insane. The Jews are not responsible for an ideology. Like that's 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 not how any of this works. Um, and I just want to reiterate a point that I made a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, and that is when you find yourself in the anti-Semitic place, stop, look around. You're in the bad place. You're the baddie. All right. We need the Mitchell and Webb moment. When you find yourself in the anti-Semitic space. You've become the baddie and that that left, right, don't care. Like you've you've followed the rabbit hole down to the dark place now. And it's time to stop and come home. <laughs> Touch some grass. Um that's a big twinkie. It's a big twinkie. Anyway. I look, I agree with you. Um I think um it's easy in the abstract to say that criticism of Israel is not inherently anti-Semitic. And it's easy in the abstract to say that because it's inherently true. Mm -hmm. The problem that I, I I said to you before we started rolling today, I I don't, I don't say, I don't mean this in a self-congratulatory way, but one of the things I noted really quickly, like in the first opening days of the conflict, that, that, that this was going to, put strain on the progressive movement. And the, I think the initial strain that I identified was those who had looked at the videos and had known what was happening and those who hadn't. Mm -hmm. And then I think since then there's been further strain and you wrote a great column a couple of weeks ago, the mask off moment, Uh, Nick uh, Kaddish in in the, uh, in the line this week had an, an article where he actually called it the right here. And he, he said, you know, I thought it was really interesting column. Um, He referred to times when, oops, dropped my pen. uh, When he's been inclined to cut his own side a break because Nick identifies himself as a partisan conservative. And yeah. And I, you and I don't have the problem. We, we, we attack in every direction at once. That's how we're wired. Um, But no, I think Nick was right. Wired to be unpopular. Yeah. Um, Nick, um, Nick, I thought what was 
telling an important point there, talking about how there have been times when he has failed to exercise appropriate discretion because someone was on his team and he was warning people on the left of the same. And I think we're going to have, uh, we're, we're in the, in the process of preparing uh, an op-ed that will approach the same issue from a different angle here, taught noting a degree of hypocrisy in how uh, th- this issue has been met by some people with public profiles here. I won't say more than that. Um, I see an interesting parallel here because I mean, back in I've I've made this comment in our comment section, and maybe it's something that I would I would try and reframe in a in a, in a dispatch. But back in 2016, when Trump came to power, there was a bit of a reckoning within conservatism. What the fuck is conservatism? This guy's not conservative, and there was there were various faction splits within conservatism between like the just want to win, you know, pro Trump MAGA crowd. To the populists, to the kind of oh, there were the never Trumpers, you know, the never Trumpers, to the people who eventually started never Trumpers, but eventually gave over, gave into the 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 temptations of of winning and success, and lost their principles along the way. And there was a real 2006 forced a real reckoning among conservatives. It forced a real sense of like, well, who are we, and what do we actually stand for, and what are our principles, and do we have any integrity? And for a lot of conservatives, it turned out that they didn't. If you ever find yourself asking that question. Yeah, exactly. Turns uh, out that for a lot of conservatives, the answer was they didn't. And the reckoning was not flattering to the conservative movement in certainly in the US and to some extent in Canada, although we have our own kind of distinct culture here. And I think that what's happening now is that there's a parallel kind of reckoning happening on the left. I agree. And it's not for me to comment on what's happening on the left internally. I'm not an internal element of that discourse, obviously. But- you know, I, I I think that uh, please don't fall into the trap that a lot of the conservatives fell into on the right of totally losing any kind of sight of moral principle or integrity or sense of who you are and what you stand for, because the tribe is getting sucked up into a, what it believes to be a winning narrative, a, a, an ultimately self-destructive and suicidal, but short-term gratifying winning narrative. I think I've told I I know I've told you this story before. I, I'm not sure if I've ever mentioned it on the podcast before. I believe Canadian conservatism became intellectually unmoored around 2013, 2014. Mm-hmm. And this explains a lot of my understanding of conservatism in Canada today. And what I think happened was that the uh, Harper majority government exhausted the list of agreed of broadly agreed upon and shared objectives, policy goals um, that were palatable to all elements of the conservative coalition that Stephen Harper knit together under the Conservative Party of Canada. I think by about 2013, 2014, the conservatives in this country had become intellectually exhausted. There was not a process of renewal about what do we believe, what are conservative answers to the problems of today. And I think what has happened instead of having that conversation, the party has found a way to animate itself with memes and shit posts and mean tweets. And I actually think the conservatives, God bless them in this country are winning the news cycle because I think they're, they are strong uh, or at least uh, talk strong on some issues that broader events are putting right in the faces of Canadians. I think conservatives are going to capitalize on that, but when you don't have a solid ideological foundation a a solid philosophical sense of what you believe weird shit seeps in and around 2013 2014 and conversations i was having with conservatives because at that point i was already a a national columnist at a national newspaper i would go to ottawa sometimes and talk to people for in 2011 it was hey tax reform 
kill the wheat board, kill the gun registry, judicial reform. By 2013, 2014, they were like, yeah, fuck, I, I don't know, like immigration. Like, like there was mm-hmm. no sense anymore. National and, hotline for barbaric cultural, cultural practices. practices. And, a, and the, a, their official junk, jump shark moment. Yeah. And a tax credit for textbooks. Like that was yeah. the 2015 conservative election campaign. Mm-hmm. And I think when you don't have a strong sense of your ideological self, that's when the crazy shit gets in. And what what happened is I think since then, a lot of Canadian conservatives, and I think this happened in the United States differently, but I think it happened. There's been a lot of, I don't belong to this movement anymore. So I'm going to go start a consultancy and make a million bucks. And then I'm Mm going to retire somewhere and golf. Mm -hmm. And I think when that happens, there's almost an ideological self-selection process or a self-sorting process where if the normies just decide they ain't up for the bullshit, the crazies inherit the earth. Mm -hmm. And when I'm looking at what you're saying about the left right now, the progressive left in North America is not doing a good enough job standing up to rank anti-Semitism coming from its flank. Mm -hmm. And it can either try to contain that stuff and possibly fail, but they can try. Or they can just deny denial about it. This isn't anti-Semitism. I'm just criticizing Israel. It's just a bunch of kids today. Or maybe even genuinely, I'm not anti-Semitic. Israel Mm -hmm. has a right to defend itself. But what Jim just said over there, well, uh, you got a little carried away. He got a little carried away. He was a little enthusiastic, but yeah, yeah, he doesn't really mean that because Jim's not that kind of a guy. The next thing you know, you are in a movement run by Uber Jim. Yeah. And Uber Jim has no confusion about what he believes. Yeah. So anyway, we've been ranting for a while. We should probably wrap up. I I feel like this has been a bit of a disorganized podcast because we just, I don't know. Sorry. It's, it's the topic. Just one topic. It's just one topic. There's only one thing to talk about. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, listeners. Please come back to us next week. Like and subscribe. We'll, t- we'll talk about Alberta provincial politics or something. I, I hope something I swear happens. to God. I hope something happens that is not this because I'm tired of talking about this. I really, yeah. You know. Like and subscribe. It's, it's hard. It's hard. Like and subscribe. Share. <clears throat> Leave a comment. Bye.